What is church? Good morning, the Assembly of God. How are you doing? Good, good. Well, it's uh, a blessing to be here again with you. It, I feel like it's always a blessing we can come together. You guys feel that way? Maybe more than ever? To be able to come together, to assemble together in the name of Jesus. And I am so excited to start off this new sermon series on what is church. What is church? And and I think many of us might have different answers to that question. What is church? And, and what I want to look at in particular today is the past. What did the past tell us about church? And I want to also be very sensitive because this is a, a, an issue that, and a topic that can really bring up some, some hard experiences for people. And I want to really set those straight. And I really sense that God it wants to get you back to really what the Bible is saying about what the church is and what he says about his bride and, and what we were supposed to do. And I want to look through the lens of the, the ancient church today. I want to look through that lens and to see exactly what that was all about in that first hundred years of existence. And so that we can pull from that and apply it into our, presence, our present day today. So you guys excited? You guys ready? Well, there's a, a, great, a great quote from C.S. Lewis. You guys C.S. Lewis fans? Yeah, I got a few. Good. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a big history nerd. And I, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, we need intimate knowledge of the past. We must understand the past. We cannot measure ourselves to the present or the future. We measure ourselves at the past. Not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future and yet need something to set against the present. This is important. To remind us that the basic assumptions have been quite different in periods and that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. And I want to get us out of what is our, our temporary fashion of church. What is the trends, the hot stuff that comes and goes in church and really get back to what was the ancient church all about? What were those Christians like the first hundred years after Christ ascended? What would they go through? What did things think they experienced? How did they conduct church? And what does that mean? And as I was praying through this message, God just really struck it in my heart to get back to what it, the word means of church. And the word there is the word ecclesia. Say it with me, ecclesia. It's a fun word. It, it's often translated as church, which will be, if you look at about the 108 times it's used in the New Testament, it's translated as church or assembly. But what it literally means, the ecclesia means called out. And that's why I named this, this sermon called out. Because to really understand what church is, we have to understand what we've been called out to do. That God has literally called us out of a place of darkness into a light. And that light has a purpose. The light has a function. There's a, a God has called us into something greater than, than, than what we were and what we have been in the past. And the early church seemed to really understand what this meant. And they lived it out very, very well. So I want to talk about that. And the first verse I want to look at is Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. It says here, once you were alienated from God, talking about once you were strangers to God, once you were foreign to God, 
and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is the, the darkness that we lived in before being called out. And look at this. But now, there's, a, there's that called out experience. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present, to present you holy in his sight. And in the context here, he's speaking of the ecclesia. He's speaking of those who have put their faith in Christ, the believers. And it, it's funny because the, the idea that we say, oh, I'm going to church. I'm heading to church. I got to go to church was extremely foreign to a first century Christian. They would have been like, what are you talking about? We're going to Lydia's house. What are you, what are you talking about? Right? Because the early church met in houses. They met in homes because they weren't allowed to meet in public. So they met in little homes and houses within the city. And there were many of them a lot of times. And in fact, you read the book of Romans and Paul is asking for all these house churches to be unified, to be unified. And, and when they were unified, it caused a lot of issues for the Romans. It caused a lot of problems in the Romans because they were a little bit disruptive in this teaching of Jesus. It caused a lot of trials and, and, and economic pressure on the city, which I think is pretty cool. But... He says this, present to you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Okay, and so that holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, holy is, is really a sense of being different. Being set apart, being something that's, that looks strange and different to the world. And the early Christians, they looked like a bunch of weirdos, Okay. We should look really strange and unique and different than the world. The world looks at us and goes, I don't, I just don't get it. You believe in this Jesus who, who died on the cross and rose from the dead? You realize that a Roman looking at that is like, oh, that's a, that's a weak God, right? They were celebrating power and might and, and victories and, and they would conquer cities and, and, and they, they actually appreciated people who rebelled against them because it means they could go in and wipe them out. They're like, I get it. You fight for what you believe, but I'm going to go wipe you out. But not with the Christians. We were different. The ecclesia is, is different than the world. It, it looks strange. It feels strange. It, it has a different kind of taste in people's mouth. In fact, this is the good news was proclaimed. It was called out and you heard it. It was this, this vessel at which the good news has poured out into the world. And they've been, it's calling people out of this, this world of darkness into a light. And, and the function of the church is to build itself upon the cornerstone of Jesus. That we are the temple that came together. Right? This, is a, this is a really first century kind of analogy of, of the place that God dwells and, and comes in and sets upon his, his people is in the temple. And the Bible says that it is here among the presence of believers that we are, we are built up as a temple, built on the cornerstone. The cornerstone is, is like the most important foundational block of a building. You lay the cornerstone first so the rest of the building can be built. And so this idea of, of coming together and, and proclaiming the word of God to all who are in darkness so that they've seen the light. And, and I thought that was really interesting. When we walked in this morning, the power was, was completely out. I mean, just black as black could be. And you walk in here, there's no windows. And so, you I mean, you can't see two feet in front of you. And that was the first thing that, that came to mind was that we've been called out of darkness into a great light. I just thought that was perfect because we almost had church by candlelight, which again, would have been even better representation of the early church. So again, our, our, 
with the church is, is holy. It's set apart. The ecclesia of God is holy, set apart, looks different than the world has been called out of a dark place into a place of light. And it's, it's talking about the people. The church, again, is, is not a thing. It's a, it's a, it's a people. It's a way that, that God looks at a dear loved one and says, boy, I died for that. I died for you. I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. It's that relationship that is so important to God. And that we are clean before a holy God. Again, holy God, clean, and therefore inconvictable by the law. We're, we're set apart. We, we can't be convicted by the world. No matter what the world does to us, it has nothing to stick to us. To be a Christian means we are free from the strains of the world. Doesn't mean that we're not affected by the world. We still go through trial. We still go through hard times. We still go through traumatic experiences. But what God is saying is that I am going to rip you out of that. I want to walk with you through that. I want to dwell with you and be with you so that we can go together in that. So when we come together as the church, as, as the early church would have looked at, they, they loved getting together because it meant that, oh, we are coming together in the dwelling place of God. And that was very, very difficult for these early Romans and Greeks to understand. That was extremely foreign to them. And I'm going to go into that a little bit. But really, before I do, I want to make sure I hit on the fact that the ecclesia, the, the, the called out ones of God, really have their identity, not rooted in the fact that they're just a church, but it's found in the, in the belonging of Jesus as Lord. And that Jesus as Lord would have really stuck out to a first century Christian because Caesar was Lord. Caesar was Lord. He was God on earth. He was the emperor. He was, he was the final say in the last, the last line. So for someone to say, no, 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 Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Again, stood out in the eyes and ears of the first century witnesses. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, this is one of my favorite passages. He says, and on this rock, and he's, he's standing next to a giant rock in Judea, uh, and he's got his hands on the rock. It's like, it was called the gates of, of hell at the time. It was this, this pagan, uh, kind of a, a highly pagan place and had a lot of, uh, interesting stories around it, but he's there witnessing and, and, and preaching there. He's sitting with his disciples and he puts his hand on that giant rock and he says, I will build my church, my ecclesia. And the gates of Hades will not, it, a lot of people say overpower. I think it stands more, with, will not withstand it. They will not withstand it. That it's not that the church of God, the ecclesia, is the one that's just going to get hammered and hammered and hammered, which we do, right? Because we are foreign, we're strange, so the world goes, I'm going to punch it, right? And so we sit there, and, and, but, it, but really Jesus is saying is that we're, we're the ones that are actually going to take the attack to the world. And the and gates of hell will not even be able to withstand it. That the church is not a defensive force, that we are an offensive force. We go. And I love that, 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 that Jesus is saying that that belongs to me, that you now belong to me, that, that, that what that past identity was, the things that you used to be don't matter anymore. It's now what you belong to me. And I will get you through your past. 
I will walk with you in your past. I will redefine your past as a people group. And it's so important to these early Christians that, that, I mean, they're giving everything up, their very identities to belong to Jesus. That their very identities as a people are now tied into this ecclesia, this belonging to the Lord. And then we are given a new family. The, the ecclesia in the early church was a family matter. It was brothers and sisters, the Adelphoi. It was a constant saying throughout all the New Testament that the apostles were constantly saying, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. We are seeds of a promise of God through Jesus Christ in faith. We are children of God given by right in our belief in faith in God. It's, it's a redefinition of the family. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 49 through 50, he says, pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. He says that with his own family outside the door. Because they, other than his mother, they didn't believe in his brothers, didn't believe in him until after he resurrected. And then they're like, oh, he was right. Okay, I better, I'm going to serve the Lord. So we get a redefinition of family. Now, how different would, would our world look if the church, the ecclesia of people looked at each other as more of a family, a family unit as the early church did than just an organization or a group of people who just come together. But if we looked at it truly as a, a mother, brother, sister situation, all born in this adoption and this new creation of our belief in Jesus. And that's how the early church really flourished was this idea that I will give up everything I have for my brother or sister because Jesus gave up everything he had for me. And then we are given equal status. This is Galatians 3.28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in the context here, Paul is speaking on the law. And he says that, and especially with the idea of circumcision, for the, for the, the people in, in the Galatian church who were being forced to, to, to abide by this Jewish law and custom, it was very isolating to the the women in particular, because they couldn't do it, right? And they basically said, if to be involved in the assembly of God, you have to complete your salvation by abiding by the legal system of the Torah. Follow the Torah, that will just add on to your salvation. And Paul is trying to correct the Galatians and seeing this. And he goes, no, 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 no. Your social status before God no longer matters. It no longer matters if you're a male or female in the society that is around you, which again, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, was very oppressive to the female unit. The Jew or Gentile, he says that, that has been redefined that now you are part of the ecclesia. You are now brought into the family of God. Nor male or, or nor a slave or free. Again, the social constructs were binding and, and people would say, well, I'm just a slave. What, what would God do with me? I, have, I don't even have a right to speak. I don't have a right to for anything. And, and Paul would have said, you belong to Jesus. And that is, is really symbolized, this idea of all is one is symbolized in the other church through baptism. That baptism was then free for all people to be able to publicly proclaim. This idea of circumcision was a public display, which you can imagine, pretty provocative in Judaism. But they said that in, in, in baptism was this public display of your, of your faith in Jesus. And in fact, in the early church, that first century, to go out and be baptized was most likely a death sentence. 
How many of you would get baptized knowing that this could kill you? That knowing that most of the village that's watching you get baptized is going, hey, there's a Christian. Hey, they're, they're doing that baptism thing where they're, jump, they're jumping in water. I bet a lot of us would rethink the idea of baptism if we knew that was our public display of saying, I follow Jesus and it's probably going to lead to my death. I mean, the, the ramifications of a public baptism were extremely vital and, and, and the repercussions of that in the early church were really important because they were literally giving it all up to say, I love Jesus publicly. I follow Jesus publicly. I mean, the idea of baptism is, is dying to your old self and being risen again like the resurrection that we're going to experience. And it really was the same way. I'm giving it all up for the, the, to be belonging to Jesus, to then be a part of this new family, this new identity, this, this new thing that God has created. And we see that symbolized really clearly in the early church in the first century. And again, the, the Romans and the Greeks thought we were the weirdest people you'd ever meet. I mean, they didn't know what to do with us. I mean, at first we were part of Judaism. They're like, ah, oh, that's that Jesus followers. They're, they're basically Jewish. Let the Jews deal with them. And the Jews are like, that's not us. We're not them. You got to do something about this. They're, they're not ours. And so the Romans didn't know what to do with them. The Jews didn't necessarily know what to do with them. The Jews tried to kind of reform us. They'd send out these guys, what we call Judaizers out of Jerusalem to go out to these Galatian churches and say, hey guys, you really need to follow the law, okay? You really need to abide by dietary restrictions. Sham put down that ham. And, and so they would try to make the Jews, they make Jews out of, out of Christians. They tried to at least. That still didn't work. In fact, the Romans, this is funny, the Romans called Christians atheists. Did you know that? that? The Romans actually called it, Christian, look at those atheists over there. Talk about a paradigm shift in our way of thinking. In fact, we have one story of a, a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp is one of the earliest accounts of a, of a Christian martyr that we have. And, and traditionally, he was actually discipled by John the Baptist. And he was 86 years old when he was martyred. And, and uh, at his martyrdom, they, there's a, quite, a, quite a dialogue. And they actually say, you know, there's the atheist, get him to Polycarp. And Polycarp's response is, I'm not the atheist, right? And he's in a big assembly of, of a lot of Romans ready to, to see him die. And as a, as a Roman would think, they would ask a Christian, in what temple does your God reside? Where's your temple? Where does he live? The Christian would, would respond, we, well, we, are, we are the temple. The group of coming together, the ecclesia is the temple of God. The dwelling place of God is, is here among us. And they said, what? And they would have said, okay, well, where do your priests conduct sacrifices and rituals? I mean, you've got to have priests that are going out and, and making ritual sacrifices. I mean, what do you do when you get sick? Like, who goes and makes your sacrifices for you? Who goes out and, and sacrifices for the things you've done? And a Christian would respond, you know, we are a royal priesthood. A believer in Christ is, is a royal priesthood under the high priest of Jesus Christ who did the sacrifice for us, who is the Lamb of God. And they would have been, again, really confused by this. They said, well, okay, well, if that's the case, what, what animals are sacrificed? If you, you know, what's going on there with the animal sacrifices? Again, we don't sacrifice animals, a Christian would say. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God that was sacrificed. And then they would have said, okay, but here's the main question. How many gods do you serve? 
And remember, Roman and the Greek have a many, many gods, pantheon of gods. In fact, Paul, one of my favorite uh, pre- our speeches of Paul's is, is talking to all the philosophers in Athens. And he says, you guys know a lot of gods, but do you, you don't, I noticed you have an unknown God that you serve. And he uses that unknown God to preach Jesus, which I think is just perfect. But the Christian would have said, you know, we serve one God, the creator of all things in heaven on earth. And again, they would have said, okay, this is whack. As the kids say. And then the last one, I mean, the one that, um, um, that Jody mentioned on is not even where we call atheists, we were called cannibals because we partake of the flesh and the blood of our Lord. They would have said, oh, so you're cannibals, right? So to a Roman and a Greek, this is super foreign, super strange. And a lot of them want nothing to do with this. Does this ring any bells in our world today? And we may have already called these things, but does the world still look at us as an assembly and go, I don't understand those people. And, the, and this led is what ends up leading to much of the persecution in the early church was this idea that we don't understand you, so you need to get out. We don't understand you, so we're just going to kill you. And these are the things that, that Jesus was, was talking about with his people. Was that the, he's like, I mean, people didn't recognize Jesus. <laughs> Look at the, and then people don't recognize the work that he's doing in the people of, of God. So they didn't understand us. In fact, again, the, the Romans, would, again, they would have looked at the early church as a bunch of pacifists. They would have said, boy, these guys never lead rebellions. They keep praying for us all the time. Like they just didn't understand this idea of, of suffering through life of the suffering that corresponds with, with following God. It, it would have been very foreign for them not to see somebody strike back. This idea of suffering and an idea of, of turning the other cheek, as they say, was, was extremely foreign to a, an ancient Greco-Roman. A people that prided themselves on the prowess of combat and the prowess of, of, of conquest and things like that. And yet they look at Christians as very weak and how many know that in our weakness, we are actually stronger? That in weakness, we're actually in a very comfortable place as a Christian. Like if you can get very comfortable being uncomfortable, you're in a really good place as a Christian. Like we're just constantly in this world of going, I feel a little like an alien here. It's like I'm speaking, no one's really understanding me. I'm living this life everyone thinks is wrong. That's a good place to be because it's linking you back to the first century Christians who would have been thinking the same thing. I mean, you look at most of the New Testament letters that are being written are written written because the, the church is going through some kind of persecution and the apostles are going, stay, stay firm, persevere. Look for Jesus as your hope. Again, this is why Christians are later singled out and attacked. And, and in the first hundred years of Christianity, it's more sporadic. We see the, the mass persecutions later when many of the emperors are soldiers and soldiers tend to be um, a little more uh, disagreeable when it comes to this in, in ancient history. So the first hundred years, we see sporadic and local persecution. It happens locally within the, the, the central areas where people kind of take it upon themselves to get rid of Christians. And in fact, traditionally, we see that all um, of all 12 of the original all of them were killed. 
Only one who actually survives to an old age is John, who writes the book of John, and he ends up dying of an old age in, in Ephesus. And so you think about all of these 11 men who walked, talked, saw the resurrected Lord, all died for their Lord. And I like to think that that was a, a legacy that is being pushed forward, that that sacrifice that was made was, was really for the future generations to see and come to the gospel. Because one of the best defenses we have of the, the resurrection of Christ is actually the fact that these people died for us. That, that they were like, okay, I, I saw the resurrected Lord. You cannot tell me he did not rise. They lived their entire lives out and were killed for it. People don't knowingly die for a lie. They don't knowingly go, okay, yeah, I'll go to this cross. I'll be burned alive because what I did, I, I know it's a lie. They go, this is real. Like you guys need to know Jesus. So we see the first century as a, as a turbulent time for the Christian church, but it's also a time of, of real growth and power. In fact, these roots that we're talking about in this first century, this strange way of looking at the church that the world has ends up actually reframing and reforming the entire world. That the world we exist in today is because of what this early church went through and the power of God that worked through it and through the church, through the very people of the church. In fact, God has chosen to use his church to call out to the world. You see this in Ephesians 3, 10, 11. He says his, this is talking to the church again. He says his, this is the Lord's intent was that now through the church, the manifold of wisdom, this is the manifold is the variety. In Greek, it literally means the multicolored wisdom. Just the variety of wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. One reason why the early church was seen as pacifists is because we understood our war is not against the people of the world. That we're not in conflict with the people of the world. When Jesus slammed that rock and said the gates of hell would not withstand us, he was talking about reconquering what was lost. That our warfare is against the, the spiritual realms that are trying to oppress the world. And that through the church, through the ecclesia, through us, the being of the church, this variety of wisdom will be made known to the spiritual realms. Think about that for a minute. That what we do as a church, as a, as a people of God, belonging to Jesus, called out as a family, makes ramifications in the spiritual realms. That those owners and principalities that have owned the, 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 the nations and the, and, the, and the people of the world are going, whoa, there's a witness here of, of a mighty God that shakes the world. That's what we're supposed to do. We are chosen to shake the world. That the manifold, the variety of wisdom of God comes through pouring out through the people who follow God called the church and it shakes the world. The early church's perspective and its function was the all-out reconquest of what was lost. God has chosen to use us to conquer what was lost in the garden, to restore that relationship that God wants to pour out of us, that things that he has done, he has given us giftings and he's built us up and he says, okay, now go and win 
what was lost. Boy, if we looked at us as more of an offensive unit, as a unit that is a conquering force rather than a defensive force and is getting always bashed and beaten, say, ooh, why am I getting so beat up? Instead of going, yes, bring it, because everyone's going to see this. This is going to be a witness of who God is. If we understood the, the purpose that was in the early church. Again, 1 Peter 2.9 says this, and this is Peter writing to a very persecuted people. He says, but you, you are a chosen people. The same choice that, that God decided, hey, you know, Israel, this weak and fragile nation that has no real greatness to it. I'm going to use that to bless all the nations. In fact, Paul is using that in Galatia. He's, he's talking about that seed of promise that was, that was chosen by God to be a blessing to all nations. He's like, we are that continued lineage of being chosen to bless the nations. He says, you royal priesthoods, you, you people who work and do the things of God, a holy nation, this new nation, this set apart nation, we, we are a people group of a holy nation set apart for a purpose a people of his own possession. Do we look at the church as something that is possessed by God? That this is, this is the Lord's thing. I think our idea of it would be very different if we looked at each other as that is a possession of the Lord. That is something God owns and, and died for. He paid that price for it. He says that you may, so that you may proclaim, you may call out the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. We were chosen to do a lot of sharing and proclaiming and calling out to what he's called the arete. It's a very cool Greek word, talking about the virtues and the character of God, the excellencies of God. That is what the church function is, is that we're, we're built upon the centerpiece of Jesus and we call out and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. That is what we live for. That's what we, we die for. That's what the early church died for was the excellencies of him. That's why the persecution was so intense because again, we, we are upsetting some real spiritual principalities when we do this. This is why it's a hard thing to do. This is why sharing with somebody the gospel is sometimes very difficult to do. Again, the church was called out to conquer, not to be complacent. We don't see complacency in the early church. There just was no room for it. To proclaim the light that called us out of darkness. To point to the light so that those who are in darkness can find the light. Live in a way that directs people to God. Live in a way that, that shows us that we belong to the people of God, the assembly of God, the ecclesia, that we have literally been called out of darkness into a light to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. That is what it means to be the church. As I wrap up here, you know, again, I mentioned that Israel was, was chosen to be a blessing to all the nations. And we are chosen, again, to be a, continue that blessing to all nations. And the other church was slandered. They were mocked. They were killed. I mean, they sheltered in caves. You know, I, you read about the stories of the Cappadocian Christians, which is this group that, that lived in ancient, was, was now a modern Turkey, Asia Minor then. But they were so persecuted that they had to go live in caves in order to worship their God. 
we really, I just don't think we understand necessarily the, the depths of persecution that our brothers and sisters before us had to go through. That are you willing to even have to go live in a cave to worship the Lord? Can you even imagine the conditions they lived in? They did this because they were serving and witnessing of the Lord. It's those things that we can look back on and just be embraced and encouraged by the things of the past. That's why it's so important to study the past and look how the church functioned and what it did and how we can pull the principles to today. And I want to end with, with this. I mentioned that we are, we are now conquerors and, and Paul confirms this as well in Romans 8, one of, my, one of the most famous verses that he ever writes. He says in 36, 39, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is what the world would look at as a Christian. But Paul's answer is no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That he says later that we will be in the triumphal entry with Jesus. That triumphal entry is a, is a huge party of conquest. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we are firmly secured, belonging, empowered to be the ecclesia of God chosen for a purpose. Let's live out that purpose, especially right now when the world is looking for any grasp of a hold, when everyone's been shooken up a little bit, including the church. Let's be that, 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 that foundation that God has built in this world. He dwells among us. He's empowered us to do the things he's called us to do. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, their lives, oh, their lives that were laid down before us, their words that were heard, the people that came to know Jesus, that they rattled their world in the first century. And those people are the same as we are. The same God, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that lives in them, lives in us, and we can do the same rattling. Who's ready to rattle the world? Amen. So let's stand. If you just bow your heads with me. Father God, I just pray that these words will not go unheard. Father, that we will leave today with a better understanding of what it means to be called out of darkness into light, to be what you call the church. Lord, let us be that. No more doing church. No more just going to church, but really being the church of people who belong to you, who are part of the, the adopted family in your name, who are created equal and empowered by you. That you have given us everything we need. Let us be that offensive force, Jesus. Let us be that force that goes. Get rid of all of the complaining, all of the, the, the suffering that we, that we have to go through and make, keep our eyes fixated on the perspective of knowing that we will be with you 
that we are more than conquerors, that we are the triumphal entry with you. Lord, reaffirm our identity. Lord, I pray for healing for those who have been injured by the concept of church, who have been hurt by what they would consider the church. Lord, let that just today be a new day where you are reclaiming the foundations that were broken, redefining the past into a new future. Lord, let us be a people who lay down our lives as a living sacrifice every day. They don't lord over each other and exercise authority over, but to really serve one another to the point of slavery to one another. Because that is a witness that the world will never understand. Lord, you say that if we love one another, we would love you. So Lord, help us be a body who really loves one another sacrificially. That your love will be seen through and out the ecclesia of the adventure. For that you will be the centerpiece and heart of all that we do. As the early church did so well and, and suffered through and persevered so they could see what your church has become today. They, again, are a cloud of witnesses of, of faith, of those who came before us. So Lord, we just pray that you will bless us. That you will encourage us through your word, through what you're doing in us right now. Remind us who we are and what we are chosen to do. I just want to take a minute, if, if anybody just wants, needs reconciliation in this, if you've been injured and hurt by the concept of church and you just want someone to pray with you and talk with you and, and reaffirm what, what this is that we do. You know, don't be shy. You can raise your hand. You keep our heads bowed. No one's looking. It's between you and God. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to reaffirm who God is and what this is that we do when we come together. How precious and beautiful this is. And for those who don't know the Lord, who want that belonging, who want that place in the family, who want all that, we want to talk to you too. We want to pray with you. We want to share the gospel with you that Jesus Christ came and died for every sin you've ever done. He paid all of it. He actually became sin on the cross for you because he loved you. He died. And on the third day, he rose again to show us who he really is. That he is Lord. If you want that, just raise your hands. If you've never given your life over and you want to say, yep, I'm done running. This is it. It's you online too. Do it in your living room. Because God is good. And he's got great plans for you. And Lord, we just say these things by your power and in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless everybody. Love you.